congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord Jesus has been teaching us the radical character of kingdom citizenship. It's so radical that it sticks out like a sore thumb in the world, that it sticks out like light, a bright, shining light in the darkness. And as God's children shine with the light of the kingdom in the world, they bring glory to the Father in heaven because they reflect Him. They reflect His character, and they are filled with His overwhelmingly, overflowingly abundant righteousness. Now, in chapter 5, the Lord Jesus is directing His focus or putting His focus on the second table of the law, how kingdom citizens love the neighbor. In chapter 6, which we probably won't get to this year, but in chapter 6, he will change focus and focus on the first table, which is loving God. And so as he deals in chapter 5 with, with loving the neighbor, he's dealing with how to, to live with our neighbor, how to deal with our neighbor according, as we've seen, to the law of life and the law of love, the law of faithfulness, the law of truth and the law of mercy. We've seen all of those different aspects as we've gone through the chapter. And as we've heard all of this, the temptation, once again, is that the little Pharisee in our old nature pipes up and says, okay, well, that's a pretty high standard, but I'll try, I'll try to do that, but I'll do this to the people close to me, to the people that I care about. And once again, the Lord Jesus Christ pushes us way beyond our limits. And he says, that's not how it works. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what you've been hearing. But that's not what I say. Now, we have to understand where this love your neighbor, hate your enemy business comes from. Some of the quotes that the Lord Jesus has given in chapter 5 have been uh, direct quotes from the scriptures which the Pharisees would twist. Here, they're twisting and they're adding. That second part, hate your enemy, is not in the law. It is a conclusion drawn by the Pharisees. It's a very clever conclusion because it comes very close to a principle that we use when we look at the commandments. When we look at the commandments, we always understand that what God forbids he ordains the opposite. So if he tells us, for instance, to not bear false witness, then the flip side of that is that he commands us to promote our neighbor's honor and reputation and to love the truth. And so the Pharisees thought they were being smart. They said, well, if God says love your neighbor, that means the opposite is also true, that we must not love who is not our neighbor, who is our enemy. But even according to the Old Testament a revelation of God, they were wrong. If you have your Bible handy, Exodus chapter 23, verse 4, Exodus 23, 4, where the Lord says to his people, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. You've got to treat your neighbor, even your enemy, with kindness and love and his those things and those creatures that belong to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, 
lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So these are acts of kindness, compassion, grace, extended even to people that are our enemies and that hate us. And if you look a little bit further in this chapter, just past the verses that I quoted, look at verse 9, and verse 9 speaks about loving the sojourner. And throughout the Old Testament, the, the Lord teaches his people not just to love their own tribe, but to love also those who are strangers, those who are traveling through, those who are from faraway lands, those who are immigrants, those who are different. That's not just a New Testament teaching. That's who God has always been. That's how he's always taught us to be, a people of hospitality, a people of kindness, a people of open hearts and open arms and open hands. Well, you may be thinking to yourself, well, but what about all the texts which speak about hating the enemy? There are texts in the Old Testament which speak about hating, and in the New Testament as well. We even sang in Psalm 26 about hating to be with certain types of people. And so we have to understand two things very briefly. Number one is that when we, as we sang in Psalm 26, when the scriptures instruct us to, to hate the company of evildoers, it's not telling us to hate them, it's telling us to hate their company, to not delight in fellowshipping and having communion and just sitting with them in their sin. We want to be away from that. And so that's one aspect of a godly hatred. But also, some of the texts in the scriptures which teach us, uh, which speak about hating the enemy, uh, are to be understood in the context of the Old Testament church. In the Old Testament, the church and the state were together. So Israel was a church, a congregation of God, and it was also a nation. It was a civil uh, political institution in the world. And those two things were together. Now, in that context, there were enemies who sought the total destruction of God's people. Uh, they were an existential threat. Imagine if some foreign power would invade Canada and their desire was to destroy everything in our land and, and kill and exterminate all Canadians so that they could move in and take over. Well, we would have to, as Christians, obey the government's call to stand up and defend our land and our people, not because we hate those people, but because if we don't stand up to, to, to maintain law and order, uh, then there will be terrible consequences for everyone. And so in the Old Testament, the, the attacks of the other nations were not just attacks that were political. They were not just attacks on the nation, but they were attacks of the kingdom of darkness. There are so many ways in which in the Old Testament, the kingdom of darkness tries to exterminate the people of God, to erase the holy line of the Messiah. And what would be the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that would be that no one would be saved. Because the, the Christ would never be born. Everyone would suffer eternally in hell. And so some of the very strong imprecatory language in the Old Testament is in that context of war against the kingdom of darkness, which in the Old Testament sometimes was very physical because it was total war one way or the other. Having said that very briefly, Scripture, all the New Testament, never allows for personal lust 
for vengeance. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the scripture even teaches us that when our enemy falls, we are not to delight in the fall of our enemy. Proverbs 24, 17 speaks about that. That word which some might know, schadenfreude, where you kind of really enjoy it when your enemy undergoes a lot of problems and suffers and you kind of get a lot of pleasure out of that. That is not for the Christian. That is not for the child of God. We do not rejoice in the suffering or the downfall of our enemy. We do rejoice, and we ought to rejoice, in the justice and the righteous judgment of God against the wicked. And there is a difference between those two things. So the Lord Jesus shockingly says to us, I say to you, love your enemies. And the reason I say shockingly is because that word enemies means literally hateful or hated ones. What Jesus is telling us to do is to love the people that are hateful to you. Not just that they act hatefully against you, but people who represent everything that you find hateful and odious. What Jesus is telling us to do is to love the unlovable. And that includes loving and praying for people who harass and pursue and seek to crush and oppress and destroy you. Why? Why does Jesus tell us to do that? Well, he says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, what Christ is not teaching us is that if we do these certain things, then that will make us into sons of the Father. That's not how it works. I don't act a certain way in order to become born or in order to become adopted by my Father. I act in a certain way because I am a child of my Father. What Christ is saying is this. This is who God is. And this is who you are as a child of God. This is who God is. He loves the unlovable. This is who you are as a child of God. Be who you are. And that's the instruction of Scripture here and in many places. Be who you are in Christ. And then Christ expands and explains, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And we can understand that. The sun rises and everybody gets to enjoy the beautiful sunshine. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And children, think about that. Why is the Lord Jesus saying that? How, how can, when we're walking, let's say it's a, it's a nice sunny day, and there are just and unjust people walking around enjoying the weather, and then God sends a big rainstorm. How is that a good thing, that he does it to both the just and the unjust? Sometimes rain can be very inconvenient. And, and we're, many of us, urban people, we're, we're people of our time. 
the people that Jesus was talking to understood rain very differently than we do. Israel depended upon rain. If it didn't rain, the crops wouldn't grow, and people would starve, and life would be miserable. When there was good rain, lots of rain, abundant rain at the right time, then the crops would grow, there would be food and joy and harvest festivals and banquets, and life would be good. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying with this rain, in modern terms, he would say he gives food. He gives good things to the just and the unjust. Now, mercy, which we saw last time, is not giving someone what they deserve. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. God, we sang about this in Psalm 145, God gives good things to all. He gives good things even to his enemies, even to those who hate him. He has, as we read and we sang in Psalm 145, a general disposition of love and graciousness towards all creatures. Now, it's so easy in so many ways to just bounce off the surface of this text and end up somewhere very, very far from the teaching of the gospel, to take a very superficial lesson from the text. And many people do that. You will often find as a Christian that people who do not believe will take little snippets of Scripture and throw them in your face and say, well, this is what you're supposed to be like. And the world certainly does that when it comes to loving everyone, to loving your enemies. They will say, well, that means that you have to accept and love and tolerate and embrace everything that everyone does. Well, that's not the love of the Scriptures. That's not the love of which Christ speaks here. This is not the love of, of Santa Claus, who kind of, with a twinkle in his eyes, kind of puts his hand over his eyes and pretends not to see the bad things we've done. This is not the love which ignores wickedness. The love of God is not like that. This is not the love of the world. The world loves to talk about love. We sometimes see the signs as we drive around town. Love is love, and, and love wins. And what they mean by that is the approval of almost any perversion and wickedness. That you can't, you can't condemn or speak against anyone's choices or lifestyle or actions. But the love of God is not like that. The love of God is not at the expense of his righteousness and his justice and his holiness. We cannot set God's love against his righteousness and his justice. He is infinite in all of his attributes. And if you think about Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra, and, and Paul and Barnabas uh, the people in Lystra are trying to worship, the, worship them as gods, and, and Paul says, you know, don't, don't do that. And then he says to them that God has given over the years to the Gentiles even, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He tells these unbelievers, these idolaters, God has been doing this for so long. Why? As a witness. 
That's very important. He's done it as a witness to testify to his divine power, his eternal nature, his divine nature. It's a witness to who he is. God hasn't been giving from heaven fruitful seasons and satisfying the hearts of the idolaters with food and gladness just to enable them and to encourage them and to say, go ahead. It has been as a witness. And the scripture says elsewhere in Romans, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There's the, there's the key here. When God is kind and forbearing and patient with sinners, he's calling them to repentance. So why does God keep giving good things, sunshine and food and drink to the wicked? Not to tolerate or to approve of their wicked ways, not to enable them, but he does it because judgment is coming. He does it to call them to repentance before it is too late. He does it because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would turn and repent and live. He does it because it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should uh, come to a knowledge of the truth and come to repentance. That's why God is holding back the floodgates of his judgment upon the earth. That's why God keeps sending the sunshine and the rain and food and drink, because he desires the repentance and the salvation of sinners. Now, this loving, gracious kindness of God towards the world is never wasted. It will always return to his glory. Either the loving, gracious acts of God will, in the end, testify against the impenitent sinner and will increase the righteous judgment under which they will be sentenced. At the great day of judgment, those sinners who have not repented and have received gift upon gift and kindness upon kindness from God, all those gifts will rise up at the last day to testify against them. And it will be all the more clear that they are justly sentenced to condemnation. That's the one possibility. The other one is this. These gracious and kind, loving acts of God will transform the wicked into children of God. Either way, God is glorified. Either way, it is made clear that God is good and he is gracious and he is merciful and he is kind and he is loving. That's who God is. And that's who, says Christ, we ought to be. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What do you get out of that? What benefit is there for you to be like the world, to be like the sinner, to be like the unrighteous, to be like the unjust, to have a, a cramped, selfish, superficial, pseudo-love that the unrighteous have, that you just care about your tribe and your people? What benefit is there? to be like the ungodly, to be like people who do not know the transforming power of the Spirit of God. What good is it 
if we live in the way of the unbeliever. You treat me good, I treat you good. Because even the most vile and base and wicked people operate on that principle. And in the time of the Lord Jesus, that would be the, the tax collectors, the, the most abhorred and, uh, people in their society, people who were on the side of the occupying Romans and who exacted money and, and goods and who oppressed God's people and mistreated them, who were cruel and corrupt, uh, very, very nasty people, these tax collectors. And Jesus says, what's the good if that's the best you can come up with to be like them? Surely, the royal children of the living God, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are called to something more than that, something higher, something better. And certainly they are, and this is what the Lord Jesus summarizes in that last verse of our, cha of our chapter and of our text. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the word perfect, we right away think of no defect and no fault, and that's certainly what perfect does mean. The, the field of meaning behind the, the Greek word and also the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is similar, focuses on the idea of completeness, that something is whole, something is undivided. God is love, and God is perfect in his love. He's not, it's not as though part of God is love. He's all love. It's not as though God is love some of the time. He is all love all of the time. That is what it means that God is perfect in all of his attributes. And John says, the Apostle John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. As God is perfect and complete and whole and undivided and total in his love, so ought we to be. This is the radical character of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We live in, uh, as a light in a world of darkness. We're shining with the love of the Father in a world of hate. Unfailingly, completely, unreservedly, unconditionally, in every way, at every time, in every moment, to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how vile and odious and hateful they and their actions are to us, we show the love and the kindness and the compassion and the grace of God our Father. That's who He is. That's who we are. And we show it even to those who mistreat us even to those who hurt us, even to those who seek our destruction. Because as children of the living God, our highest goal is not my comfort, my convenience, my satisfaction. But as children of the living God, our highest goal is God's glory and the eternal salvation of every human being that God brings into our life, whether neighbor or enemy. Well, we hear the Lord Jesus Christ instruct us to do this. 
And perhaps you're thinking to yourself, because I certainly am, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, I can hardly muster up enough love for my kids some mornings or for my spouse some days. And God wants me to be unfailingly, unconditionally loving all the time to everyone, even to the people that are trying to destroy me, to the people that hate me. How am I supposed to do that? And brothers and sisters, we can't, can we? And that's the whole point, isn't it, that we can't? We can't, that's what the gospel keeps telling us, we can't do that. But Christ can, and Christ did, and we can, and we do, in the power of the Spirit of Christ. The Bible says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. That is going to change things, isn't it? If the infinite love of God has been poured into my heart, that's going to look like something in my life. And so if we want to live in the love of God, if we want to show the grace of God to the world around us, then we can't do that with the little bit that we have in ourselves. Because we're going to run out real quick. But we need to have those pipelines opened up. Those means of grace, the preaching of the word and the holy sacraments, those massive pipelines of God's grace and love that he pours himself into us so that we are full of his love, so that we overflow with his love and grace into the world around us. That's why we're so hungry and thirsty for the word of God as it's preached and as it's sealed to us in the sacraments, because we need God's love and grace pouring into us. See, that's the difference between legalism and the gospel of grace. I was looking at a, a video the other day, and there was a glass of water with dirt in it. And the person filming the video, said, well, how do I take this dirt out of the, the water? They tried different sieves and with a spoon, and they got some of it out, but a lot of the water came out as well, and the glass was getting emptier. And then they said, well, watch this. And they took a, a massive jug of pure, clean water, and they started pouring into that glass, and the glass started filling up with that water, and all the guck started overflowing and coming out. And after a while, all that was left was pure, pure water. And that's how grace works, brothers and sisters. As God pours it into us, all the guck and the filth of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our ego-driven lives, all the sin and the shame gets washed and washed and washed away, and we are filled more and more with the pure love and truth and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it fills us, and it overflows from us, and it just makes everything different all around us because we our sons and daughters of the living God. We are sons and daughters of God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we're coming up on Good Friday, just this Friday, and we see the Son of God nailed on that cross with his arms 
wide open, wide open to embrace the world, to, to call the world to himself. We see on the cross of Good Friday, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is teaching us here in Matthew chapter 5, who did what he said and made possible what he commanded as he on that cursed tree died for those who hated him. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done, to love the unlovable. We were the unlovable, and he loved us. Now that Christ, who did that, he lives in our heart. That Christ who did that has changed our hearts. That Christ who did that has poured his spirit into us. And that spirit of Christ is the power that enables us to live in this world as little Christs, to love our enemies, to live our lives in the shape of the cross, to live our lives in the power and the glory and the majesty of the kingdom, that through us, God pours into this hurting, lost and broken world his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his kindness. O oh Lord, let us love our enemies. Let us live by the law of grace. And let it be that even the most hateful and hurtful people in our world may come to know and to see in us the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen.